1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. As my guest last week said, I'm going to start with, in my humble opinion, leadership is an art form. I fundamentally believe to do it well, you've got to constantly adapt, stretch, transition. There is no settle in, I've got it, I know what I'm doing. So today, I want to talk about some real-world experiences, on the ground, live, and what it means to do that kind of constant adapting and stretching. And we're going to hear some advice from uh, my guest as well. So my guest is Jim Beasley Suffolk. Jim is a managing director at UBS Investment Bank, and he joined UBS in 1998 and then in the graduate training program in 2000. He's been there since then. Since 2015, Jim has been and still is the head of Central and Eastern European, Middle East and Africa equities. And in this role, he manages the firm's equity, trading, and sales businesses for those markets. And he's got teams located in London, South Africa, Russia, and Israel. So in an addition, Jim was appointed head of European Execution Sales in 2016. And this has him managing a number of client-facing execution teams across a range of products within equities. So throughout his career, and the reason I want him as a guest today, is that Jim has been passionate about both working with clients as well as building, leading, and being part of successful teams. And Jim lives in London, I should say, with his wife and three sons. So, Jim, welcome to the show.
2: Wonder. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me here.
1: I'm excited about listening to it, and, you know, we've talked, so I know a little bit about your backgrounds. I think this is just going to be great fun to do a little more depth about what you've learned about leadership. Let's start with this whole notion about transitions and your experiences in leadership, and I'm interested in a time when you made a transition. So, say, moving from one area to another area, how would you make that change? How did you get that opportunity? And what did you learn along the way?
2: Okay. Um, Well, transition, I look back at my career over the last 19, 20 years, and I think there's three types of transition. In the early stages of my career, really those first 10 to 12 years, I was going from one role of subject matter expertise to another role of subject matter expertise. Um, The second type, from 10 to 15 years into my career, I started to do player manager roles. Um, They, I think, are the very hardest Um, people are most skeptical around you and you've really got to prove the doubters both your peers um, and and the people above you and then the final transition is is going into a senior management role where you then give up those those daily production activities and a much more strategic role so I really think it depends on on which of those different types of transitions but I have examples in in all.
1: Okay great well I'm interested in the subject matter expertise when you step into the managerial role and how you deal with some of the skepticism that's there.
2: Absolutely. And that, I think, is definitely the scariest one. Um, When I went into that change of role, I'd spent um, 12 years of my career wishing I could go into an equity sales role for stockbroking, giving clients investment uh, buy and sell recommendations. That was my dream job that I always wish I'd um, gone into, but I never did. I, I went into operations, logistics, um, analytical roles. But I finally had that opportunity 12 years in, not just to go into that role, but to, to, to manage a, a small team as a, as a player manager. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the biggest risk of my career. I think the first thing you do is you go for an incredibly steep learning curve, and you've really got to get um, a credible amount of expertise as, as quickly as you can. I think that's the first challenge to, to, to get past.
1: Okay. But Jim, how do you know when you've got enough expertise versus you've got too much expertise and you're tipping into trying to do the job of the people who report to you?
2: Um, I, think, I think you've got to be c- credible. So when that, that in that role, people want to see you as, as a player manager doing doing the key parts of the role that that they themselves are doing. Um, And I think what's really important is to to demonstrate to the the team that not only can you do that role and pick up the skills, but also you can bring a broader set of skills to the team that they will all benefit from. So having done um, roles across the investment bank, as a senior relationship manager, I used to represent many products um, across the bank. And then as a salesperson, I would then, in a particular product, you could then bring those broader skills into um, to the rest of the team. So you could then have a, an information exchange, almost like a skill set exchange with your team. That then builds up the credibility. They're more accepting of you um, and allow you more time to, to come up with the, the subject matter expertise and that they can help provide you. So I think demonstrating that you can bring a different skill set and then learning and working with people, I think, buys you time. You then got a six-month, twelve-month period to, to really go incredibly quickly up that learning curve, building in that case your own client relationships and demonstrating success. I think you know, is, is is critical.
1: Okay, and especially when you're in, as you described that player-manager role, which so many people are in now, you're both doing as well as managing, and it's to, you know it's just not that pure management. All right, so let's stay with this one for a minute. So you said this is the scariest role. How much risk did you feel like you were taking in making that move?
2: I, I honestly felt at the time, if I got it wrong, I might not have a job for much longer. Um, that's the, the the level of risk I was I thought I was taking at the time. Of course. I think it's quite easy to perhaps overestimate the risk in reality, um, often managers the people are pointing you into that role, that um, they're doing so because they have confidence in you, um, and you have their, their back. you typically would have their backing, and I absolutely did in, in, in that case. Um, but I think it, is, it, it did feel scary at the time, but the one thing I would say is that throughout my career is when you give yourself a precious situation is often the thing that that pulls out the very best in you it pulls out the best performance it pulls out the best sharpness in how you approach the role so i think i overestimated the risk at the time um, but it certainly helped sharpen my sort of focus and performance um, throughout that period
1: Okay. All right. So were there moments in this transition? So you've taken on your dream job, you now got to prove to a team and a bunch of peers around you that you can come up the curve on stuff you don't know. you got other skill sets that you're bringing to bear to buy you some time, as you said, six to 12 months. Were there moments when you said to yourself, oh my gosh, what have I done to my career?
2: Absolutely. I mean, without, without question. Um, and I think that the thing that you, you know, really need to do is to Understand the critical aspects of that skill set as quickly as possible, so in that case, um, pitching investment ideas is there 's techniques that you can use to um, to leverage the expertise around you, um, so be very selective in, in, in terms of leveraging those tools around you, leveraging the, the aspects of excellence that exist in the team and be honest with the people that you're, that, you're, you, that are helping you um, achieve that in this case, we used to share you know, best investment ideas and and, and structure those in a way that's very clear and, and in a manner that other people in the team can, can, can use those materials to go and market to clients. Um, so I think it's really around being honest, uh, working hard, sharing, and then demonstrating to people very quickly that you can bring other skill sets. So in, in, this, in this case, we used to think about our core relationships and with a broader understanding of the firm that I represented, you can think about which products might be suitable and commercially um, viable for for those clients that you're speaking to to to, to start um, leveraging right. and, and being a part of. Great.
1: All right. Did you lose confidence in yourself anywhere along the way,
2: or did you struggle not, not with the all, confidence? Um I th- Was well, it? I I think for a year you, you you operate in that high adrenaline environment and 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 you push forward and make progress. I think getting feedback as you go along that way is is important. I think the one setback I I would have had was. Having really got into my stride in that role, two years in, not reaching a promotion, um, I think for me that would have been the thing where I had the greatest um, setback in that particular role. But and that in itself was, was was a learning curve, and you um, you, you you prove your doubters wrong or you prove your critics wrong by by really improving that much more. Not getting that promotion was actually the, the, the right thing at the time. Um, but but that was the time when I thought I, I, I was was failing. It took me one more year, and ultimately I then was able to make that step from from an executive director in our organization to, to, to a managing director.
1: Right, right. Okay, so I talk to tons of people in investment banking, but it's true in law firms and partnership driven firms and a whole lot of other places where you think you're ready for that promotion before you get it. And the frustration of why did that person over there, who I don't think is as smart or producing or delivering (laughs) as much value as me, and they got it, and how am I supposed to come in and put up with this? So what's your advice on how to work through that kind of a setback?
2: I think the first inclination for, for many people it was for me is that when people explain why you haven't got that role, um, you want to push back and, and, and put up barriers and, and, and be defensive. I think you've got to get past that, that emotional uh, reaction very, very quickly. Uh, in my case, I didn't have a strong enough technical expertise at that point in time to um, be credible enough to, to add that to my more transferable skills. Um, my boss um, then was, was actually my boss today. And he, he said to me, he said to me on more, of a, more than a couple of occasions, the way in which I reacted over the following year after that setback was one of the things that really impressed him and, and was the making of me at that point of, of, of my career. So I think the best way to, 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 to make that step forward is to, is to listen, um, listen to your critics, listen to the feedback, and, and really be very deliberate in then how you go about addressing those, those mm-hmm. things, those items. Um, it, people need to be careful that they don't listen to that feedback and then only revisit that that feedback in a year's time when it's your annual appraisal process. I think be very clear about what those two or three items typically are, and then work towards those really every day. I think the analogy that I would would use is that a healthy diet isn't achieved in one day. It's, you know, are you eating that healthy apple every day instead of the candy? So do something small every day to work towards those, um, those aspects of development that you need to address.
1: Okay. So can you give an example of something that you decided deliberately to work on and how you did it every single day?
2: Absolutely. So the first 12 years of of my um, career was really around understanding the bank's full um, suite of products and services. And also I had a more analytical role and a more operational role in the very early stages of my career. The thing I really had to focus on was stock market experience. So how do I articulate an investment idea to our institutional clients what are the key uh, principles of doing so? Your actual knowledge of, of different companies across the stock market. So for me, I'd only really had um, two years of, of, of stock-specific experience on top of um, a few years of, of studying some, some more macro elements of the market. So that for me was, was, it was about the detail of financial markets, which I really had to focus on at that point in time.
1: So did you find a mentor? Did you go talk to people? Did you have people that you went to and kind of worked on? I mean, w- what was that routine like on a day-in and day-out basis?
2: I think it's a number of things. I think definitely having that network of people um, who you can discuss and point towards who are, who are excellent at that particular skill set, i definitely leverage, leverage those. And those people are all too willing to, to help you if, you've, if you have that strong network in position in advance of actually requiring it. Um, I would also point to a couple of very strong mentors for me, people that, that really gave guidance. Often they're the people that, that, that can give you confidence as well. So the people that are either your sponsors or your mentors or your coaches will, will look at you more objectively, will identify and recognize your progress to date. And sometimes it's going to those people and, and having that reassurance to, to take that leap of faith. So partnering with some experts on the floor and, and really um, getting that confidence and guidance for, for mentors was, was very, very important for me.
1: So, Jim, did you do things like go to a mentor and say, look, I think I'm not doing this very well? I mean, were you that candid and open with them?
2: I, I was. I, I think with, in privately, I would definitely with, 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 men, mm-hmm. with mentors, yeah. people that you really confide in and have, have confidence in. And, and I've, had, I've been very lucky to have a couple of exceptionally strong mentors who, who I think have been one of the most influential things in, in my career, learning from people who are truly outstanding, learning from people who, who, who you feel you have their backing. And so that, for me, for people I, I really trust, yes, I'd be absolutely candid. More broadly, I think there's a bit of a defense mechanism, perhaps not to be as open with absolutely everyone. Um, but I, would, I, I do pride myself in, in um, treating people as I wish to be treated myself and, and building strong partnerships at all levels um, people my peers people that um, are more senior than me and, and people that are more junior and I think if, if you're consistent in the manner in which you, you operate and treat people as you wish to be treated yourself typically people are very supportive when you ask for help um, so that's what I would have done I would have got a lot of guidance and, and, and confidence and sponsorship from a couple of mentors and then I would have um, seek um, collaboration and, and, and support from, from a network which i would had in place for for a number of years but yes, being honest, I think um, you then tend to get the help that you need
1: I hear this so many times from people who have succeeded and gone on to do some of the larger roles they wanted to do the importance of having people you could go to and be candid with and you know, get their support and backing and have them tell you the truth sometimes when you don't necessarily want to hear it But equally, being able to reach out around to the peer set or those just slightly above you and collaborate, pull on their strengths when you don't have it. And boy, does that take a lot of vulnerability when you feel like everybody's skeptical of you and waiting to see what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. So let's move. I want to talk about the second transition because I think it's an interesting one, the third one that you talked about. And that's when you're sort of largely giving up the production and you're moving into being a manager. So yes. what's that been like, and how has that happened?
2: That's quite a... The first time I, I, I did that, well, I, I did that from, from leaving this sales role, which I've just been talking about for three minutes, and then moving into um, the first of my more senior management roles, managing uh, an emerging market equity business. And that really was, was, was daunting. And um, not only... Are you operating an area where you're you're not familiar and you're starting again f- from a learning perspective? Um, but you're then the, the senior person to to, to many people in, in many different geographies. Um, I think getting used to being uh, the manager in the room, but not the subject matter expert, and that in itself is is a whole experience. And you really got to, it's very nerve wracking at the beginning. I think you get more used to it as you as you uh, you progress in the role and as you. Um, And take on other senior management roles. But but I think taking confidence um, that you're not the subject matter expert is is a learning curve in itself. I think the most important thing is is to learn what are the key questions um, that you need to understand that you need to be asking. So you become a person that's less about the technical understanding and more about are you an expert at asking the right questions to get the answers that you need.
1: That's interesting. There's um, I've talked about this before. There's a senior person, he's retired now in a slightly different industry, and he used to talk about the ability to manage almost anything, any region, any country, any product, by having seven key questions, seven key metrics. Okay. And he said, you know, I sort of monitor those seven metrics. Everything's going along on those seven metrics. Then I don't worry too much. They're managing the business reasonably well. That's fine but something goes wrong in those seven seven metrics, then I'm into the team figuring out what's happening and what's going on and kind of drilling a little deeply. So this notion of having key, knowing how to ask the key questions, so do you have a favorite set or do you have any advice about developing those key questions?
2: I think as the portfolio of businesses that you run or or the portfolio of responsibilities that you um, look after, as that expands, I think... um, Key questions, but also key metrics. It's almost like a flight deck. You need to have the most important to understand what the most important information is, and have easy access to that. So, in in many businesses, um, revenues or sales um, targets would be one of the most important pieces of information, and costs um, would be another. Obviously, the two components that then drive a profitability. And I always, when I'm introduced to a new business, the thing I'm most focused on is really understanding that front to back. Um, chain of events in completing that, that transaction. So c- doing the transaction and completing the sale is, is often just, it, that, that's the fundamental part of a transaction but there's just such a, a long catalog um, of, of events thereafter. And so understanding that, 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 that chain of events I think is really important. And once you understand that at a reasonable level you can then identify uh, what the risk components, what, the, what are the riskiest items that could happen Um, In that front to back chain. I think as senior managers, really what we are um, are risk managers. We're all managing an aspect of risk. How do we um, grow our um, revenues and profitability, um, but at the same time, making sure it's done in in a controlled and, and, and risk awareness manner?
1: It's interesting that you say that, understanding this front to back chain. You know, decades ago, we used to talk about the value chain, and that's not what you mean. What you mean is from the point we start something to the point that we complete it, whether that's a sales or a transaction or a client onboarding or whatever it is, front to back. Yeah. What's all the steps that happen along the way, sometimes in sequence, Absolutely. sometimes out of sequence? And then where's, I'm going to use the word break points. Where can it yeah. break? Where can it go wrong? Interesting way. Um, and all sorts of techniques for being able to do that and then uncover. And I can imagine once you understand that, you kind of know what's driving the business and what's what you need to focus on. It's fascinating. Um, Jim, we have talked about this and you talked about it a lot already. I just want to make sure I have covered this one carefully with you. You talk about technical leadership but you also talk yes. about transferable leadership skills. What do you think are the most important transferable skills? Wow. Um, or maybe I should start I think, with explain what you mean for everybody who hasn't been part of this conversation.
2: Yes, okay. So, so, so technical skills I would, I would describe as um, being a, a subject matter expertise at a, a particular uh, job or a, or a task. And when I look at my career the last 19 years, the first 10 to 12 years, I went from one role to another um, with quite a well defined role, which required being uh, an expert in that particular um, niche. And during the first 10 to 12 years, I was building up a portfolio of different um, technical skill sets. And typically, to progress in my first decade, um, there was a fairly linear correlation between the amount of technical skills I had and um, my uh, level of seniority or progress uh, within the organization. After reaching that player-manager role after, say, 12 years, that's when that intersection of technical skills versus transferable skills really um, comes to play. Um, And so it's less about the, the technical specifics of that investment idea, and it moves on to things like what is the strategy of the team, um, and what are the different components of that strategy? So, do we have our, our sales targets? Do we align our rights and resources in a people, technology, to those uh, business targets that we're seeking? And now, as a senior manager, the my reliance on transferable skills is actually far in excess of, of technical skills. I drill in on a technical basis when there's a specific situation that requires it. But otherwise, it's those transferable skills that we we're operating on um, from a day-to-day perspective.
1: That makes a ton of sense. Um, and I do think that that transition shifts, that, it's, that sometimes you find you've got 10% transferable skills and 90% technical, and yeah. then you can be 20, 80, and, you know, it can shift steadily. And I also see sometimes you've sort of moved into the more producer-manager and you're using more transferable skills, but something goes wrong, and you go back to the technical. We need we need you absolutely. back in the technical absolutely. to fix whatever went wrong. Okay.
2: Yeah, Any if advice? Like
1: <coughs> go ahead.
2: Sorry, one second. As soon as something goes wrong, then you absolutely then you you're back to the ninety or hundred percent technical skills. You really need to understand the situation in in absolute detail, in order to make the. The, the critical decisions at that point in time. Similarly, when there's a really great opportunity, maybe there's a, a client pitch. Again, that's an example where you join the team, it's a team effort, and you really immerse yourselves in, in the particular um, detail of that, of that situation. So there are times when we go full throttle into a technical or a very specific situation, but generally when the business is operating on a, a more even keel, um, then it's uh, around the transferables. I'm sorry, I interrupted your, your question just then.: that,
1: That's okay. It doesn't matter at all. Um, so can you, you know, what do you think are the most important transferable skills to acquire? Do you have a list or some ideas?
2: Um, I, I wouldn't say I haven't got a list uh, to, to hand, but I think um, when it comes to being a leader of a team, I think having a clear plan for me is, is where it all starts. So you know, what is the plan? What are the clear targets um, and how do we articulate the rationale of what it is that we're doing? I think just stating um, a vision um, alongside a, a target um, is one thing, but, but articulating as to why, then you start to get people really believing in this and, and, and supporting you um, in, that, in that common goal. So I think having a plan... And, and part of that plan is not just is, is really identifying the products and the clients and the people um, and those scarce resources that you have in your firm and, and bringing those all together to go and achieve that plan. And people are um, arguably or are absolutely um, the scarcest of all the resources. If you don't have a good plan and leadership around those people, um, then I think um, you, you ultimately have a broken business. So that's the most important thing for me.
1: Okay, fabulous. That makes tons of sense. But you come back to that ability to articulate what we're doing, why we're doing it, and do that in a way that becomes compelling to people. That, you know, sometimes that means a little debate and argument and frustration, and sometimes yeah. it goes quite smoothly. So it's all of that to get people um, rallied behind a single cause. Um, ha- just for a couple minutes, Jim, before we take a break, one of the biggest challenges I see people in their careers is they start with doing exactly as you did for the t- first 12 years, acquiring a skill, and then I got that mastered, and I acquire a new skill, and I get that mastered, and then I acquire a new skill. And the pathway often forward is quite straightforward. I know what skills I have. I know what skills I want to have. I can demonstrate that I've acquired them. It's a, it's more tangible in many ways. How do you know when it's time to move from the technical leadership and to begin to exercise your transferable skills? How do you know when it's time to make a shift?
2: When I think about um, careers in certainly my industry in in finance, I often think you can have a great career by either being a subject matter expert and, and becoming more and more senior and more and more highly regarded and more and more valuable to your clients in a particular niche, Or you can develop your career um, in the direction of a more general management route. Um, And that's obviously the the area that I've um, pursued, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in the last um, five to seven years. I don't think there's a right or wrong, but I think being mindful about which direction and which um, field you want to operate in is is really important. So you're taking deliberate steps. Um, In terms of a time frame, I've had about seven roles now in in the 19 years. So that's... um, Every two to three years, I've, I, I've made a change, but that's not been consistent throughout that period, and, and one of the roles I think I did for um, six or maybe um, seven years. So I don't think it's about a fixed time period. I think if you understand whether you want to build transferable skills or whether you want to build um, more and more technical skills and be a specialist, I think you need to be honest with yourself and set out clear goals and, and markers. I think a good exercise to do if you're going down and you want to pursue a more transferable skill set role is to really think about where you want to be in three to five years' time, not one to two. I think one to two and you're really back to your business objectives, what you want to do um, Mm -hmm. in your actual role. If you think beyond three and maybe to five years' time, I think you stop joining up the dots from where you stand today to where you want to be and you start start identifying the skill set gaps that you have vis-à-vis, the other people that currently have those senior roles. And if you can identify that and then align those to the opportunities that you see and come across, then um, you can be excited about taking the the, the plunge or taking that leap of faith into one of those opportunities, which really addresses that skill set gap.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I talk to lots of people, though, who say, I don't know. You know, when I look out in the organization, I don't really know where I want to be in three to five years I don't really see anybody's job I want to have. So what's your advice in that case?
2: I don't think you need to have a specific idea about about which role you want to go for. But when opportunities do come along, I think the way in which you evaluate them I think you can, you can take a, a more common approach, which is first of all, that, is the role exciting to you? I think if you like a role, then I think that goes a long way to, to you being naturally motivated and therefore performing to a high caliber in that role. I think the next thing is to think about, is the new opportunity additive to the existing skill set that I have, either in terms of developing my more technical skill sets or building on transferable skill sets um, which would then ultimately to more senior roles and more opportunities going forward. So, for example, if you've not done people management before and an opportunity comes along to do that, that could be a great um, learning curve and a great opportunity to to add to your your toolkit of, of skills.
1: Okay. That also makes a lot of sense here. Okay, one last question before we take a break. And then when we come back, I'm going to talk about what makes for great leadership, but in general. but um so you talked a little bit about setbacks that you've had in your career. You must see lots of people around you who deal with setbacks. What's the one thing to do and the absolute one thing not to do when you have a setback?
2: Not to do don't don't give up. I think, the people that get one setback and then that really knocks their confidence, I mean, that can really ultimately limit the, the, the progress that you'll make um, thereafter. So the biggest recommendation I would have is, is, is listen to the feedback and then really maintain and, and, and increase your focus on delivering at that role and addressing the, 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 the feedback that you've received. If you've had an outstanding year after receiving a setback and you've categorically addressed those bits of feedback, it's very difficult for anyone to, to stop, uh, to, to, to not show you those future opportunities um, and, 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 um, and growth path going forward. So I would uh, listen and uh, be very focused on delivering excellence against those.
1: And obviously, focus also means you need to let people know you're working on it so that they see you doing it and they see the growth and all those sorts of things. And I will also add that sometimes the one thing you're working on wasn't enough thing to be working on. You have to add a little bit more to it. So it's not an automatic next year process. All right, my guest today is, we're going to take a break, is Jim Beasley Suffolk. Jim is Managing Director at UBS Investment Bank. Um, head of Central and Eastern European, Middle East, and Africa equities. That's a mouthful. Jim, I think this what's most most interesting to me in this pit of conversation that we've had is the way you articulate technical skills versus transferable skills, and being clear in your own head. Which skill set am I trying to develop now and for what end? Like what end three to five years from now? I think that question is really critically important for thinking about careers. When we come back from break, I want to talk about Jim's view of what makes for great leadership in building great teams. We'll be back.
0: business community's
3: first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network
0: if you want more information on the articles books coaching and seminars we offer go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com you're sure to find some helpful links videos and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization leadership forum inc helping organizations get it and keep it
1: your work-life balance. In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
3: at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events.
0: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to Wanda.Wallace at LeadershipForumInc.com. That's Wanda.Wallace at LeadershipForumInc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: Welcome back to the show. With me today is Jim Beasley Suffolk. Jim is Managing Director at UBS Investment Bank. Um, One of the things that I find interesting in our last conversation is this notion everybody is interested in how do I plan my career? How do I think about my career? Where do I go in my career? What do I do in my career? And I think Jim just gave a very straightforward way to begin to think about the career progress. And that is to be very clear about the technical components you think you need to acquire. Probably test those with some people to make sure you've got a good set on that one. And then to be clear about the kind of transferable skills and a bit of emphasis on which one you want to do. Do you want to be that subject matter expert who's deep in an area and adds enormous value because of the depth? Or do you want to be the one that's doing more of the management and the strategy and the rallying, the team and all those sorts of things, and then begin to acquire those skills. And as you heard from Jim and from everybody I've ever interviewed, every career has a setback. There's this moment when you don't get the opportunity or you don't get the promotion or you don't get what you think you should have gotten, and then it's a matter of dealing with that. Sort of taking a hard look, listening to the feedback, and showing, moving the needle forward on those issues every single day. I, can't, I don't think I can give any better advice about how to think about career. So what I want to shift to from now is to talk about this whole notion about what makes for great leaders. So, Jim, I'm in, just interested in your view. Everybody has their own view, and there are certainly thousands of books of people who've written about what they believe is great leadership. But I'm interested in your experience. What are the essential elements for making somebody a great leader?
2: Thanks, Wanda. Um- I think for me, there's there's three things that that come to mind. Um, Firstly, manner. I think it's personally, it's it's a value of mine, is to treat people as as you wish to be treated yourself. I think that's really where um, it all starts. And it doesn't matter your style of leadership. um, You can have a different style, but I think treating people as you wish to be treated yourself is is my personal value, which I've um, placed an enormous amount of emphasis on. The second component, and I just mentioned it, is style. I think you can have a more dictatorial um, approach to to leadership, or you can be more inclusive and collaborative. I'm certainly um, more of the latter would be my uh, modus operandi. That said, I think the style of leadership is is essential depending on the scenario in which you're operating. Um, Over the long term, a strategy which is inclusive, and I've seen this in so many examples um, at work, but one which is uh, inclusive and collaborative typically reaches um, a higher quality end outcome. However, in an emergency, a more controlling approach, I think, is is certainly required. You've got to understand the critical facts and and be really decisive. Um, And the third component of leadership, for me, is actually how you execute. And that goes back to the comment we said in in the first part before the break, which is around what is that clear plan, what are the clear targets, how do you articulate your, your vision and goals to the rest of the team to really get people to buy in. And I'd be a broken record and, and be reiterating that in different form, forms and different different formats to make sure that that message is, is really loud and clear. So for me, manner, style, and, and execution would be the way that I think about leadership.
1: That's interesting. Um, I want to focus just a minute on manner and challenge you a t- tiny bit, which is, you know, everybody's, and it's a lovely statement, to treat as you wish to be sure. treated. But sometimes yeah. how someone on the team wants to be treated isn't the way you necessarily want to be treated. How, how do you deal with those yeah. situations? Yeah,
2: and, and, and actually, I'm glad you asked that question because I, I think I, that was an incomplete answer in the way that I think about manner. The um, manner is certainly not about being nice to everyone and it's not about making friends. But I do think manner is about being consistent and firm and fair and not avoiding the tough messages. And we talked about setbacks previously and the personal setback I had in one particular year where I didn't make a promotion. Um, I didn't want to hear those tough messages at that point in time, but I look back at that now and recognize that that was absolutely in my, in my interest. So I would look back at that scenario and say, I was treated in the manner with which I wanted to be treated, um, although it might not have felt like that at, at that moment <laughs> in time. Having really clear developmental feedback has been one of the things that, that people have to have and then need to address to, to move their career forward.
1: Yeah. I think it's hard to be too excited about a leader that doesn't tell you the truth about where you are and what you need to grow. And if you're not getting any direction on growth, you you know you just wonder what you're doing and where you're going. And I, I see a lack of that all over everywhere. So I think that's an interesting one. Um. And then you said style, so and I like the dichotomy between the dictatorial and the inclusive. And I do agree sometimes when we're in a crisis or some when, times when I am the deep subject matter expert and we got to get it fixed, a more dictatorial so long as it's not unpleasant, I think works quite well because you know what you need to Absolutely. do. It's a matter of getting people organized to get it done. But um, on the inclusive side, so there's a lot of discussion on inclusivity, and I know at UBS this is a hot topic at the moment, inclusivity, collaboration. It's easier said than done. So do you have any advice on how to build a more collaborative, inclusive environment?
2: Absolutely. Um, I think it is easier said than done. I think it it starts with um, empathy. I think um, all too often in the workplace people are focused on their own individual goals and objectives and therefore to work with someone else um, at first will, will often mean them spending or giving up a bit of time on their immediate goals um, and objectives. So I think the, when, when people are seeking help um, or when I'm um, asking for help, I think the first starting point is to, is to really articulate in the rationale, why is this good for the organization why is this good for, for us uh, on a combined basis? I think that's really, really important. Typically, pe- uh, typically speaking, I think if, if you can understand somebody's, um, the other side's position and they can understand yours, um, very rarely have I seen people not willing to, to, to want to work together. And I think our, certainly our firm culture, that's, that's an excellent um, uh, attribute that, that we have in our firm.
1: Yeah, I see that too because I think people are becoming increasingly aware of the fact, as you talked earlier about the end-to-end chain of events that happen and understanding that entire piece of the transaction. When you see that, you start to see how dependent you are on so many different people and skill sets and groups. I think that also helps in that atmosphere of understanding where different sides are coming from. Um, And so manner... Style and the last one, execute. Um, I, I will say that I am guilty that sometimes, as I'm working with people, I get so overly focused on the manner and the style that I forget to talk about the how you actually get it done. You make it happen. You have a target. Yeah. You have a plan. You have a ticket. It's really important for success. Otherwise, we're not driving a business where we want to want to go. Um, let's talk about influence. So one of the hottest topics going, every CEO that I ever talk to about their concerns about leadership capability within their organization says, I don't have people who are good at persuading, influencing, and inspiring. So can you give us some examples or, you know, times you've had to influence others or any advice you have about what makes influence? How do you be more effective from an influence point of view?
2: Sure. I think that this the cornerstone of being a good influencer is having a reputation for being excellent. So I think regardless of your job, I'd pursue that with excellence and and, and therefore you get recognized for that. So therefore that you bring credibility to any conversation that you that, that you have. I think when you're then um trying to influence someone, I think um being factual and uh certainly in our business, is is, using a small number of data points, not to baffle people, but to give credibility in in articulating your side of of, of the argument. And and therefore, that that builds um, empathy. Um, I think going into a a situation and trying to influence um, without a strong existing network, mentors, sponsors, um, is much more challenging. So coming back to the treating people fairly, and having a strong reputation for excellence they are prerequisites to to having that credibility that then helps you have the, the network and the mentors um, the more challenging the, the situation the, the more I would lean on 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 those that that network and, and mentors for, for advice and, and to to gain feedback and to gain sponsorship all those are absolutely critical and the final thing I would I would say is that um, I think how you go about a situation is, is really key. I, I often see people identifying issues, um, and that's, that's great. That's very useful, and as a manager, you, obviously, you want all those issue, issues um, bubbling to the surface and, and, and you being aware of those. But I think it, it, to gain influence, I think you also not just have to provide issues, but you also have to provide solutions. And then there's the third group, which I think you're real outperformers, which are those individuals that, that can operate by identifying issues, um, identifying solutions and then um, similarly to my view on leadership as being part of that execution it doesn't mean fixing all those things themselves but can they and can you work together to, to put in plan a plan of action so identifying issues uh, solving issues and then uh, actually implementing solutions for me is the way in which you, you really um, build that influence across an organization
1: right and presumably that creates a pull that people want to work with you next time we had a success that one it was a good thing I want to do it again Um, I want to go back to this notion about network. Every advice you ever get from any senior leader anywhere is going to talk about the importance of the network and why you need the network and you have to build your network and your mentors and so on. And a lot of people, especially early in their careers, are going to think about the network as my network up. But when you're talking about influence, you're also talking about the network out, your peer network, or even down for that matter. And this notion that you use that network, you lean on that network or your words, particularly in challenging situations, and that's how you have influence. Now, that's interesting. Can you give me an example?
2: Wow. Um, um, an example. I'm not sure I have one that springs to mind, Wanda. Um, if
1: we could that's maybe okay. come back to that momentarily, I'm sorry, that That's cool. That's, um, cool. that's cool. Well, I see people um, in that... In that moment where you're trying to influence somebody that you've got a good way or a good execution, or they should be give up some of their time and some of their um, achievement of their own targets in order to be part of a bigger collaborative effort. That you don't always know every single person you need to reach out to deeply enough to get them, but if you've got a broad network you've got someone you can go to for advice and say, what's the best way to persuade this person? Or can you join the effort and help me persuade that person? Or am I thinking about this the right way? Or is there another way to articulate what I'm trying to do that's going to be more persuasive for people? It's just that you can't sit there and assume that you can figure it out all yourself. You've got to have people with other perspectives and other relationships and other styles that kind of help you pull together. And to me that's where the network becomes a really powerful play.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And one thing I've noticed is the, the more senior you get and, and therefore the bigger the, the piece of strategy or, or the, the, the situation that you need to influence on, the, the often the broader the, the uh, network that you really rely on. So if it's highly complex or you're actually changing a, a strategic item in a business, you're fundamentally changing how business is set up, that often requires an enormous amount of consideration, especially with you know senior peers, people with expertise in, in different areas and I can I can you know, point to how we 've you know, restructured businesses to ultimately make them better, more profitable, um, but that does um, require some tough decisions um, um, along the way and, and, and in doing so you 've really got to consult that those the broad set of experts and then to actually execute on those and um, the to, to point you raised before you 've got to and get people at a senior level to give you sponsorship and authority and you've got to work with people across the entire team to actually get things done and get things done and changed
1: all right okay excellent all right so let's shift gears a minute I want, one of my favorite topics is about priorities Okay. And I want to concentrate perfectionism and priorities. And the reason I say that is there's a lot of focus. We want to control risk. We don't want to have any mistakes. We don't want to have any failures. I want to look good. I want to build my credibility, all those things. And that drives for a set of behavior around perfectionism. But in the contrast and the polar opposite there's no way you can be perfect in everything and there's no way you can get everything done so that means you have to set some priorities which are focus, and some things are gonna go let go not be perfect as a result of setting priorities how do you go about prioritizing or how do you advise people to prioritize
2: wow sure um i think it's uh, a a business author which which um i, I read from follow in the uk he says uh, do now and, and perfect uh, later um now you know do now and perfect later I, I would say with a caveat you have to know the minimum acceptable standard or, or an acceptable level of risk especially especially in our business but um to your point perfect information simply doesn't exist um so being a leader is um, about asking those key questions. What are the key questions that will give you the best information to to maximise your return on on risk, your return on time? Um, but once you have a, once you've got um, as good information as you you think you can within an acceptable time period on the areas of greatest risk, then I think it's um, you've just got to get on with it. And and when I look back at my career, if I was to to think about i don't have any regrets definitely no regrets but i would i would certainly have taken some of those bolder steps earlier on in my career and perhaps um taken more risk um, personally not to be um not to be uh out of control in any manner but certainly to, to put yourself out of your comfort zone in in more situations because more often than not they absolutely um, pay off that's interesting
1: everybody says that but the moment you're sitting there saying, am I going to take this risk? Am I going to, you know, run the challenge that everything I've done is going to fall apart? You know, that's when, wow, <laughs> when it becomes hard, really, really hard to do it. Um, and I find, find people who can get comfortable with what's the minimum standard or the acceptable amount of risk quickly are the ones who get more done. Absolutely. They get done what matters. It's, it's easier said than done. Okay, so Jim, sort of my last, maybe my last question, we'll see how timing goes here. You've evolved over the course of your career. We've talked already about the technical um, leadership and the transferable leadership. Are there any particular things about your style or your approach that have changed over time?
2: Yes, uh, definitely. Um, I think a couple of things. First of all, uh, I would say delegation. So, I really struggled with delegation. Um, I, I wanted to do everything myself. And that's a, a, a trait because in your early stages of your career, especially when you're that subject matter expert, you typically progress in your career as a result of delivering more and more things and, and by taking more stuff on. Um, when you then get to that stage where you transition to being a player manager, and certainly when you transition to being a manager, you've got to maximize the outcome for your whole team. And, and therefore, you can't possibly um, be doing everything yourself, so you have to delegate. So that journey for me was one of the toughest, um, but one of the, ultimately one of the most in, in important. Um, I think the second thing is, is self-awareness. Um, you know, I, you know, we're here on a, a show today talking about transitioning through careers, talking about leadership, and actually I'm more aware of, of the aspects of leadership, which I think I do reasonably well, and more importantly, where, where I'm not so strong. And I think really going back to... Um, uh, going back to your own development areas and really thinking about what is it I need to be doing at this moment in time and taking a step back, I think is, is really important. So for me, that de- delegation and self-awareness would be two, two things I'd certainly point to.
1: Okay. Delegation. I can't resist asking, do you have advice on how to learn to get out of doing it all yourself yeah. and delegate yeah. effectively?
2: Absolutely. So, i 'm um, I'm a, I'm a person that does lots of lists, and, and so I will always have um, a list of items, every item, um, long term strategic, uh, nearer term, more administrative items um, and then at the start of every single day, I will always put on there one of the most important strategic items that I need to, to be dealing with. if every single day you do a small piece of work, whether that 's you delivering it or whether that's your team members. Um, towards your strategic items, then the compounding effect over time I think is incredibly powerful. Um, the second thing I, I do is once I look at the items that I've really got to do and I, and I understand the priorities, is as a manager, I think about you know, what do I need to do and what can other members of the team do? You know, who has capacity and, and also who would be the best placed person to, to do that? So as a manager, I think it's delegate first and then actually use your time doing second. And it's not to sound selfish, but the very things that you're, you're giving to people are often the best things you can do to, first of all, raise the overall team um, output um, and, and, and performance, but also the things that will stretch other people and be lifting their careers. So I'm, I'm, I'm a lift person. I prioritize every day, and I, I delegate every day based on, on people's capacity, capabilities, and what I think is going to be interesting and stretching for them.
1: It's interesting. One of the best pieces of advice I got in my career was from a guy ahead of me who said, Wanda, never do anything you can afford to get somebody else to do. And it's yeah. an interesting challenge to say both. I love the two points that you have there. One is every day what's the most important strategic thing I need to be focused on and move it forward a little bit. But the second part of that one is to say, Who is doing this? Who can I give this to? Where is their capacity? How do they do it? And you think that first, who, and then refer back to my time. Interesting. Jim, sadly, we are out of time. And it's amazing. Every week I do this show, I seem to want to talk another 30 minutes before I end up with anybody. So thank you very much for sharing your experiences and your own personal journey and transitions. Much, much appreciated.
2: Well, thank you, Wanda. Thank you very much indeed for having me on the show. It's been, a, it's been a real privilege. Thank you.
1: All right. And my guest today again is Jim Beasley Suffolk, and Jim is Managing Director at UBS Investment Bank. And as you can tell, Jim is pretty passionate about both working with clients and delivering results, but also being part of leading and um, building successful teams. Join us next week for another episode in how to get out of your comfort zone.